This episode of EdTech Hour is brought to you by the Educational Psychology and Technology Program at the Chicago School. The Chicago School's mission is focused on integrating the values of education, innovation, service, and community. The Chicago School provides students innovative and practitioner-based learning experiences in which they're able to positively impact others around the world and address issues faced by underserved populations. Through collaboration with the university administration, faculty, and students, the EdTech Hour is created in order to pursue our vision of innovation and global outreach. This podcast series includes thought leaders from around the world who discuss relevant issues centered not only on technology, but also the impact of technology on humanity. Speakers provide listeners with stories of how they have impacted learners, employees, and communities through their pursuit of understanding how individuals learn and use technology to improve performance. This show provides a global medium to share and promote various issues and developments in learning and how professionals are utilizing technology. By listening to this show, I hope that you are able to develop a unique insight into how you can incorporate similar topics and trends into your own professional settings. I look forward to learning more about our topic with you throughout this episode. And welcome to the EdTech Hour podcast. My name is Nadia Iftikhar, and I'm a doctoral student at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Today, I'm here with Dr. Jessica Lester to discuss her experience with and knowledge of technology and qualitative research. Hi, Dr. Lester. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nadia. How about you? Doing well. Could you give us an overview of your background and research interests? Yeah, well, first, thanks so much for the invitation to share with you today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. You know, I did, I identify as a qualitative methodologist and a qualitative researcher, and I work as a professor of qualitative methodology at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, where I teach and mentor graduate students in our methodology program, as well as students from across a, a range of disciplines on our campus all of whom are interested in learning how to design and carry out qualitative research studies. So for me, I bring much of my academic training to that work. And I was primarily trained in cultural studies and research methodology, specifically qualitative research methodologies and methods. And much of my substantive work is very interdisciplinary in scope. Before all that training, I was a classroom teacher. I was uh, working with both middle school children, elementary children, and then also eventually became a special education teacher. My methodological scholarship, actually, there's a few strands that reflect some of that early work, but much of that work is really focused on theorizing and developing language-based methodologies and methods like discourse analysis, conversation analysis. And I lean a lot into an area called ethnomethodology, which is an approach, an analytic approach to thinking about and examining how people make sense of themselves as well as each other and their social worlds through their everyday actions. Some of my more recent methodological work has really attended to what it means to practice the centering of disabled body minds when designing qualitative research studies. So we often think about disability and qualitative research as being about the study of a disabled community or disabled people. And in this work, my colleagues and I are really interested in thinking about what might it mean writ large to think differently about the methods we produce and the methods we use as we go about centering disabled body minds as important, regardless of the topic of our study. And then I'm also quite interested in the intersection of technology and qualitative inquiry, which I know we're going to talk a bit about today. But this is an area of great interest to me and has been for well over a decade of thinking about the place of technology in our qualitative research design. 
Okay, that's fascinating. It was it's very interesting to hear that you started off in education middle school and special ed. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you transitioned into higher education in detail? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so I think, you know, is which is coming from not everyone, but many of us who perhaps had a career before we got our our doctoral degrees. When I started graduate school, it wasn't necessarily a, a personal goal of mine. I didn't really even have a sense of what the PhD would land me with. I was just interested in expanding my study, continuing some of the work that I was already doing in communities and with youth and children in particular. And specifically, disabled communities were particularly relevant to the work I was interested in continuing. But as I progressed in my graduate training, I became increasingly interested in really thinking about the development of methods and methodologies and found myself kind of organically landing, kind of steering towards an academic career. And so by the end of graduate school, I did that thing where you go on the job market and explore what might be available for you given your areas of focus. And, you know, it's well over a decade later, I'm in an academic position and, and doing work that I feel really privileged to be able to do. I mean, sometimes I do think to myself, I can't believe I'm paid to, you know, do this kind of research and think about these topics and theories and methods on a daily basis. But but my journey was, I don't think, dissimilar from particularly folks that have, you know, aspects of life and careers happening before they land in a graduate program of, I was kind of lucky to land where I landed, but also really enjoyed what happened in my life before graduate my graduate training. You mentioned research interests broadly, you know, you talked about disability, and then also technology. How have you found your research interests evolving over time or over the course of your career? Yeah, so across my career, I've, I've always maintained an interest in methodological development within the field of qualitative research, and specifically focused on language-based methodologies like conversation analysis and some forms of discourse analysis. And this interest has always, for me, been at the intersection of a close study of the interactions that involve children and youth. And particularly, I'm interested in the interactions that involve quite often, not always, but disabled children and youth. Mm-hmm. And so it's perhaps unsurprising that, you know, well over a decade later, I've begun to think about what does it also mean to think about methodological development, research design in relationship to diverse body minds and body minds that are often not imagined as being part of a research study. And I should just back up and say, I, and when I talk about disability, I do choose to use identity first language. So rather than saying people with disability, I say disabled people. And that's really in alignment with the the thinking and disability communities around identity first language, but it's not universal. It's just a choice I make and I'm willing to change it. So all that to say, over time, I've become really interested in thinking more fully around what it might mean as a qualitative methodologist to engage deeply with disability theory and how that might shape the way I both teach research design and envision research design, regardless of the topic of my study. You know, across my career and my methods teaching, when I introduce this idea, I will commonly hear, you know, I don't study disability. I don't study communities that might have any interest in disability. Why is this relevant to me? And in this work, I would argue, I think it's relevant for all of us as as researchers to think about who lands in our research studies. And they're often body minds that we can imagine in the normative possibilities that we all navigate in our day-to-day life. 
But there are many body minds that often live outside of our research design because of tradition, because of westernized ideas about who should be a part of a research study. And it's often implicit decisions. And so anyway, all that to say, that's probably been kind of the most significant shift in my research. We're really trying to think across these two areas of work and interests and how might I integrate them. And then also, I'll just say, you know, across my scholarship, one of the threads that's been pretty consistent is continuing to think about what it means to engage with technology for good and bad when we're designing and carrying out our qualitative research studies. I've heard you say a couple of times, body minds. Could you explain Mm -hmm. what that means and the use of that? Yeah. So that's a term that Margaret Price, who's a disability theorist, offered us. And the idea is, is that a body and a mind are inextricably linked. And so using that term as one is just really acknowledging the fact that we can't separate bodies from minds, but rather body mind is how we are all navigating the world around us. All right. Thank you. I'm curious why qualitative research? Yeah. You know, that's an interesting question because my gut level response is just to say like, why not? In part because for me, thinking about qualitative inquiry is how I orient to and make sense of the world, particularly the kinds of qualitative methodologies I take up. They are, they always bring with them worldviews, of course. And so the methodologies that I engage with and that I work on developing are closely aligned with how I make sense of the world and my own understanding of knowledge and notions of reality. And so for me, there's a direct alignment with the way I was making sense of the world with the methodologies that were really attractive and not so much attractive. I guess a better word would just be to say that they resonated with me. And that is not to say that I don't see value in other research paradigms. I think the table, this is you know, metaphorically, the table is quite long. And as one of my colleagues says, penguins and and ducks and chickens can all sit at the table and we can take very different, we can look very different and take very different orientations to doing research. And we can also get along, like we can let each other be a chicken or a penguin, so to speak, versus asking them to become me or to take up my orientation to the world. So anyway, all that to say, when I was a graduate student, I found qualitative methodologies to really resonate with the kinds of questions I was interested in exploring about meaning making practices and about the world and about the things that I thought were most relevant to the work I had previously thought through and engaged in as well. And with that said, in some of my most current work, I'm also really interested in thinking about how do we engage across paradigms and thoughtful and meaningful ways, particularly when for many folks, we often are trained quite deeply within one research paradigm. And it's not like we can just, you know, dabble a little bit and think we're really good at doing some methodology that we've hardly ever done. And so thinking about what does it mean to work on teams of researchers where we might have really different orientations to the research process, but engage in a really generative and productive research study that thinks across a range of perspectives and research paradigms. And how does technology tie into that, into your interest in qualitative research? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about how that topic became of interest to me. And it was back when I was a graduate student. So it's like 17-ish years ago. I conducted with a colleague, conducted a literature review. And what we were interested in was the methodological literature 
related to the use of technology when thinking about conducting qualitative research. So how were methodologists, qualitative methodologists, writing about, talking about the place of technology in the qualitative research process? And what we found back then, and it's been some time, what we found back then is that most of the discourse around technology and qualitative research was centered on the idea of technologies like qualitative data analysis software packages that support analysis. There was really little discussion around other digital tools or spaces that might be relevant across the research design. And we also noted that in much of that early literature related to this topic, there were many cautionary tales, meaning that some scholars were arguing that it was really important to be hesitant, cautious about the use of technologies in particular to support analysis. There were also some emphasis on the idea that some forms of qualitative data analysis software can only support some kinds of qualitative methodologies. So those were kind of the broad contours of that early kind of journey into trying to make sense of what are the current discussions around technology and qualitative inquiry. So that inspired me, along with my colleague, Trina Paulus, to begin thinking about how we might envision what we felt like a lot of qualitative researchers were already doing, which was thinking about digital tools that span across the research process, from the early literature reviewing process to collection of data, to yes, analysis of data, but also representation of findings. And so we began writing around that. And as we did so, that understanding also became more expansive for us as we began to think about not just digital tools, but also digital spaces. Now, as qualitative researchers, we now have a plethora of publicly available data. Sometimes it's not always publicly available, but this mass of data where people are displaying in public ways the way they're making meaning of their lives from TikTok to Instagram to Twitter. These virtual spaces are new spaces for us to think about as qualitative inquirers about what it means for our study of meaning-making practices, recognizing that, you know, people aren't just using technologies now, they're living through them. Mm -hmm. And so currently, a lot of my work in this area is really thinking now about how we as qualitative researchers might produce a reflexive and meaningful digital research workflow from start to finish as we design our study and carry out our study. What are the ways that we might interface in generative forms with a range of digital tools and potentially within digital spaces, depending on the, the focus of our research? And really making that an intentional act, recognizing that there are always consequences with the engagement of technologies. Technology is not neutral. It's not, it, it is often exciting when a new technology comes out, but that doesn't mean that there's not potential implication for its use, particularly in connection to research, which involves, you know, humans and the impacts on humans. So when thinking about a digital research workflow, we're really arguing that it's important to think through what those consequences might be at the level of ethics, at the level of your method, might your method need to be remade and reconsidered, but also thinking through the human impacts of using particular technologies. Right. And you kind of touched on this already, but how, in, I think you mentioned 17 years of this interest, how have digital tools in your time transformed conventional qualitative practices and how do you foresee that changing in the future? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because 
as qualitative inquirers, we've always used tools of some kind. They haven't always been digital. Like if we think back to the early anthropological work and we look back at some of those early pictures of anthropologists in the 1920s and 30s, we see that they often had tools like a pencil in their hand and a piece of paper or a notebook. And we then see over time, qualitative inquirers began adopting other tools as, you know, maybe working with sonographers or thinking about how they might record and potentially transcribe their data. And what we've seen in more recent years is this kind of burst of new technologies, some of which we have seen infiltrate how we think about how we do things like collect data, how we do things like transform our data into transcripts. But what's interesting is with the COVID pandemic, we saw a real surge of the methodological conversation about the tools that were available and about their implications, both the good and the bad. And we also saw a burst of new literature in this area. But I think what's really important to keep in mind is that the idea of using digital tools and working within digital spaces is not particularly new in the methodological literature. We have well over a decade of scholarship of folks from across a range of disciplines that have thought about things like what might it mean to conduct an ethnography in the context of the internet. You can think about folks like Heinz or Kozinets who offers ethnography. So there are a range of, of methodological ideas that are there for us and that have been for a long time that we can turn to as we think about what might it even mean to digitize my methodological practice. We've also seen, of course, over the last couple of years, a continued development of qualitative data analysis software packages. We've not only seen those packages become more nuanced and offer a a range of features that can support us when we analyze our data and engage with our data. We've also seen a proliferation of different options from those options that might have a few features to those that have an overwhelming number of features. And we've also seen a lot of development in thinking about how technologies might support transcription in recent years with the rise of artificial intelligence. You know, folks are thinking about what does that mean ethically to store our data in the cloud? What does it mean to have AI as a core tool for transcription? How accurate is it? What languages are being privileged? You know, those are all all questions that that you know don't have easy answers, and there's no single answer, but that qualitative researchers are having to wrestle with. There, of course, in the future, because your question also spoke to what what might be future developments. I think there are many different pathways that that might follow. I think one area for sure is that we can anticipate a continued development of qualitative data analysis software packages. In recent years, we've seen the exciting development of the XML Exchange Project, which was wherein many of the developers of some of the major qualitative analysis software packages worked together to find a way for someone using InVivo, for instance, who was working with someone using MaxQDA to not have to purchase each other's package, but actually for those files to merge. And we now have a tool that can support collaboration across a range, not all, but a range of those packages So those kinds of developments, I think, are really exciting and can speak to what we might see in the future. I think one thing that I think about a lot, because a lot of my work does does think about the place of transcription analysis and interpretation, qualitative data analysis packages are really transforming the meaning of transcription. And I think a question that we'll have to wrestle with and, and 
you know, many of us are beginning to do this already is what is the place of transcription in a context where we do have digital tools that allow us to work directly with our recorded data. And some folks have been asking the question for some time now is, will we always transcribe or will that become a remnant of our methodological past? And of course, new technologies will really shift that and hopefully push that conversation forward as well. What would you say are some of the advantages and disadvantages of kind of digitalizing transcription versus having that human piece to it? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, if we think about the different ways that we can transcribe using tools, we have, you know, AI mm-hmm. that is increasingly becoming more and more accurate. It's a little iffy with multi-party interactions, so interactions involving more than two people. But what's interesting about AI is it its accuracy is variable across languages. And of course, you know, English is often privileged and that in and of itself creates a real divide between those researchers who might be working in other languages. But I, of course, think that that will continue to improve, like its capacity will improve. One of the important questions to ask when you're using AI for transcription is ethical implications. What are the consequences of storing potentially sensitive data in the cloud? What does it mean to store data in the cloud? Can I assure that I know who all has access to my data in the cloud? Of course we can't. So, of course, there are some forms of data that we will likely never be able to store in the cloud, and nor should we for a range of reasons. So those are you know, some of the pros and cons of AI. Another thing to keep in mind is, you know, another mechanism for interfacing with digital tools for transcription is that we can manually transcribe. And there are a range of technologies that support that. They don't really make it faster, but they do make it more efficient without the timepiece. So there's tools like Ingscribe that allow you to have shortcuts for a range of things that you might be transcribing. You can also transcribe in uh, the major QDOS packages like Atlas DI and Vivo. And there are tools like Dote is a newer tool that's supportive of people that might be working with video data and want to uh, transcribe interaction. All those tools are really wonderful for helping us stay close to our data. But what they also foreground is the idea that transcription is interpretive and it is part of our analysis process. It is a human endeavor. I mean, we are producing partial positional representations. We're partially removing, going a little bit further and further away from the actual event that occurred. And so we do have to ask ourselves, do we want to release all of that activity to the cloud? What happens to our interpretive understanding if that part of our analytic work is no longer central? I don't think there's a a right or a wrong here. I think it's really something we have to think through methodologically as we progress in having access to new forms of technologies to support our transcription work. I'm going to shift a little bit to talking about virtual spaces. Could you define virtual spaces? What are we looking at um, as far as 2023? What, what do virtual spaces look like? And what's their impact on modern qualitative research at this point? Yeah, you know, when we think about virtual spaces, we think about places where we might be collecting data, like for instance, when the COVID pandemic Unfolded, we know that the majority, if not all, qualitative researchers became under a mandate that they had to move their research, their in person research, to virtual spaces. So they might have conducted interviews in Zoom or Skype or other video app platforms. So virtual spaces can be spaces where we collect our data. 
But there's also virtual spaces where people are going about their business, not under the guise of there being a researcher there watching them do their business. So virtual spaces like a range of websites on the internet or Twitter, or I mentioned earlier, Instagram, TikTok, and I'm sure there's many more that will be on the horizon in the coming years wherein people share their everyday lives. And so those virtual spaces for qualitative researchers are really creating new ways that we can think about data collection, as well as new sites of research. They can be an actual space that we go to research what's happening there and or a primary place that we collect our data. And I'm curious, is there a particular study in your experience that you found insightful and that demonstrated the importance of technology, virtual spaces and such in qualitative research specifically? Yeah, I mean, there are particularly post-pandemic, there are a plethora of studies that we can turn to, as well as a plethora of kind of methodological guidance. A useful place that I often encourage folks to start is with older work and quotes older Um, So work that was pre-pandemic and work that is perhaps understood to be less contemporary. I think the work of Kozanats around netnography is a useful starting place. You know, that idea was something that Kozanats wrote about in their dissertation. So it's an idea that was fleshed out across many, many years. And there's lots of different examples of netnographic studies that offer useful examples of how a digital space becomes a primary site of study. And then more contemporary examples that highlight not only really provocative contemporary understandings of the social world in these newer evolving digital spaces like TikTok or Instagram, but also illustrate some of the ethical dilemmas that people face when they're engaged in those kinds of spaces are those studies that focus on Instagram. So there's a scholar, Keiko McCulloch, who studied Instagram spaces, specifically looking at the construction of gender with a popular public site. They're called the Dolan Twins. And the Dolan Twins had a public Instagram space and Keiko collected visual data and conducted a visual methodological analysis of the data and talks about in their article also the ethical dilemmas they had to navigate as they thought about who owns the the visual data, how should they ethically access the the visual data, particularly when they don't have access to getting direct permission from the actual producers of the images. So anyway, all that to say, that's a a useful scholar to turn to in this area, as well as other studies around these newer spaces where we haven't had a lot of opportunity to think through unexpected ethical dilemmas. Right. You've mentioned ethics quite a few times. I feel like with things that are changing so quickly, it's something that's very important to keep in mind. As far as ethics and digital tools and qualitative research, what are some important things that new researchers, people who are just starting this endeavor in their careers, what are some things for them to keep in mind? I think a core thing to keep in mind is that the ethical landscape is really gray, so to speak, that there's not a binary for us to turn to. And so what that means is we have to commit to engaging in recursive reflexivity of of, continuing to ask ourselves important ethical questions around the work we're doing and the potential consequences to both people, the methods that we're using, and also to our design in and of itself, our research design. So, you know, one of the early discussions around digital tools and qualitative research in particular, as well as the digital spaces, was around, you know, what counts as public versus private. And we've seen 
a lot more recent writing that has argued that binary, that presumed binary of public data versus private data is perhaps not as neat and tidy as we ever thought it was. And so it's not enough to say, you know, what is this public data or is this private data that we have to think also about, well, it might be classified as public data. Are there ways that we can make sense of how the people who are participating in the site orient to this data? They don't view it as data. They view it as the way they're making meaning of the world. So there has been some research that's actually looked at that and has illustrated how, in fact, there are times where, yes, people are very aware that they might be doing something in a public space and other times don't orient to the digital space as a public space, but see it as private. And perhaps if we're asked, would decline to have their public data be part of a study. So those are all really layered and complicated considerations that we have to think through. You know, should we get consent? How do we get consent? What does it mean when you're working in a digital space where there is no possibility of consent where people are using anonymous names. So all of those kinds of questions really relate to the context that you're engaged in, but they are questions we have to ask because there will be consequences. Just like there are in in-person research sites, there are consequences to how we go about collecting our data. Right. You also mentioned certain shifts that took place before and after the pandemic. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what you feel are the most notable shifts if we're comparing quality of research in 2019 versus how it is today as influenced by the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, one of the most striking sh- shifts for me was that because of the mandate where everyone had to move things online, what we saw a real burst of was the immediate shift of thinking about what are the implications to conducting interviews and focus groups in online spaces with a range of populations. You know, what does it mean if you're even making like a virtual observation? How do you navigate spaces where it's virtual and someone that's not part of your study, but is part of your participant's household somehow is on the screen and participates? So the big shift is that there are more of us doing that kind of work than ever before. And so that pushed that methodological conversation to the forefront, which is why we've seen this huge spike in the published literature of folks talking about the ethical implications and the challenges of collecting data in these virtual spaces and really redesigning studies. Another thing that I think importantly happened was that there was an an opportunity for the methodological community to turn back to all of these resources that existed pre-pandemic for us around what it means to conduct qualitative research in a digital space or with digital tools. And so a lot of crowdsourcing happened really early on where people said, look, this is not really a new concern. And we have all of these resources that we can turn towards and turn back to some of the early writing and contemporary writing that was already there to support us and thinking about this. I'm curious, in your words, what is the most important take-home point for people who are new to technology and qualitative research? Yeah, I, I think the most important thing is to recognize that there are always consequences with the adoption of any technology in your qualitative research practice. And so what that means is given there are consequences, we want to remain reflexive and recognize that we want to make sense of what potential consequences there might be before we conduct our study, but also recognize there are unforeseen consequences that might surprise us as we carry out our study. So that's that you know reminder to be recursively reflexive, that we're continuing to engage in 
really thinking through consequences and being open to our participants, also highlighting those for us as well. Are there any resources that you would recommend for someone who's new to the topic, kind of where a starting point? Yeah, so Janet Sammons has written quite a bit for many, many years, even pre-pandemic, around data collection and online spaces, and also has some wonderful online resources for folks and conducts interviews with a range of scholars across the world, some of which do focus on the engagement of technologies and qualitative research. And then my colleague, Trina Paulus, and I have also written two books on this topic, Digital Tools and Qualitative Research, early on, and then more recently, We've written a kind of an expanded conceptualization of digital research workflows for qualitative inquirers as well. Wonderful. If listeners have additional questions, what would be the best way to contact you? By email. I'm a fast email responder. So my email, jnlester at iu.edu is the best way to get in touch with me. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Lester. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nadia. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this edition of EdTech Hour. I'm Dr. Kelly Torres, the Department Chair of the Educational Psychology and Technology Program at the Chicago School. This podcast was completed through the support of our dedicated faculty, staff, and students. To learn more about the Educational Psychology and Technology Program, or if you're interested in being on the EdTech Hour podcast, please reach out to me at ktorres at theschicagoschool.edu.